the book of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he be found, if any be found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I ask that you will be with us in the remainder of this service as we present your word to be examined, our hearts to be examined by your word. As we celebrate the Lord's table, God, I ask you will be glorified in this and speak to us through it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Have you ever been certain of something that you ended up being wrong about? Certainly wrong, maybe, so to speak. Have you ever been wrong about a person? Maybe you judged that person's character and you thought you knew something about them, but in the end of the day, you found out that everything that you were assuming was wrong. There was a movie that came out just this year that I was able to see called Just Mercy, and it's a movie that talks about a story that took place in 1986 in a town called Monroeville, Alabama. Monroeville, Alabama is somewhat famous, and it is the setting for a book that almost every child reads in school called To Kill a Mockingbird. It was also the home of Harper Lee, and it kind of serves as an ironic backdrop to this story. The story that was there about justice, and particularly racial justice, is now the place where uh, a huge injustice has taken place. And it's centered around the murder of a, a young woman named Rhonda Morrison. Rhonda was found shot multiple times in, in the back at her, at her workplace where she worked, a dry cleaner. And when the police found her, and she was a, a, a well-known person in the community, the family was a part of the community, and, and there was chaos because for seven months, no one could solve this murder. No one knew who had done it. They just knew that this young woman, Rhonda Morrison, was dead and that someone had killed her. And then seven months later, the police arrested a suspect named Walter McMillan because the testimony of a man named Ralph Myers, who was himself a convicted murderer and serial killer on trial, getting ready to possibly even go to death row, came forward and said, I know who killed this person. I know who killed Rhonda. It was Walter McMillan. And the narrative fit. It fit the preconceived bias of the jurors and the public. And this Walter, his nickname was Johnny D., McMillan was sometimes a petty criminal. He had known he had a criminal past. And in that small Alabama town, there was another scandal in that he was known to have had an affair with a white woman, which mattered in Monroeville, Alabama, especially in 1986. So when the finger was pointed at him, he was immediately arrested and put on death row before there was even a trial. And when it went to trial, he was defended by a public defender, and he was easily convicted, and he was sent away to die. 
The problem, however, was that he didn't do it. There were a dozen or so witnesses that day that placed him at a church picnic. The truck that was supposedly seen by this man, Ralph Myers, driving past, and as he looked in the window and he said that he saw this man, the truck was being worked on that day by a friend and had its transmission out all day. There was no way that McMillan could have been that man. McMillan never even went into Monroeville that day. But even when presented with the evidence, and even when Ralph Myers later confessed that he had, been, that he had lied under oath because they had put him on, on death row, and he, had, he was afraid of fire because his face was burnt, and he was smelling the, the, the death of the electric chair, and he got scared, even when he admitted that he had lied under oath, the family of the victim, the DNA, the, the district attorney, and even the judge, the original judge, remained committed in their belief that McMillan was the murderer. To admit that they had been wrong was hard to do. And it wasn't until later when a lawyer named Brian Stevenson won a desperate appeal for a retrial that McMillan was freed. So what was the difference between Stevenson and the rest? The difference could come down to the fact that he actually met the people that knew McMillan. And even more importantly, he came to know McMillan himself. And the personal relationship led him to believe the story and caused him to go to extraordinary means to make that story known. In the book, The In Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, by a a Ph.D. professor named Robert C. Aldini, he talks about something called the consistency principle. And you may be wondering what all of this has to do with Acts chapter 9. Just hold on. There was a study done by a Canadian psychologist who uncovered something fascinating about people in, at the racetrack particularly, not that I'm endorsing betting at racetracks. But it says something about people and their desire for consistency. In fact, it studied people that just after placing a bet, people are much more confident about their horse's chances of winning than they are immediately before laying down the bet. Before laying down the bet, they have all sorts of doubts. Is this the right way to go or not? But after laying down the bet, they suddenly become convinced that yes, their choice was the right choice. Nothing about the horse's chances actually shift. It's the same horse on the same track, on the same field, but in the minds of those betters, its prospects improve significantly once that ticket is purchased. And the reason for this is part of what makes us human and part of our social existence. Like the other weapons of influence, this author writes, this one lies deep within us, directing our actions with a quiet power. It is quite simply our nearly obsessive desire to be and to appear to be consistent with what we've already done. Once we have made a choice or taken a stand, we will encounter personal and interpersonal pressures to behave consistently with that commitment. Those pressures will cause us to respond in ways that justify our earlier decision. Psychologists talk about it this way. The drive to be and look consistent constitutes a highly potent weapon of social influence, often causing us to act in ways that are clearly contrary to our own best interests. And so we come to this person of Saul. In Acts 9, we find our second encounter with this man. He is a man clearly of commitment. 
We see his, this first in his commitment to understanding Judaism. It was extreme. Paul talks about himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, someone that studied under Gamaliel. He was committed to, what, to his version of Judaism. And here he sees, we see him in Acts 7 and 8 as the one that seems to be overseeing the stoning of Stephen. He was zealous for his beliefs, so much to the point that he was re- ready to kill people who got in the way of that. He was extreme, and he was committed. He's now he's, we see him engaging in the persecution, not just against Stephen, but he's doubling down on his efforts. He's going after all the churches. And we see in chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. We see the same theme picked up in Acts chapter 9, where it says, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I kind of wish Bob was preaching this, because I know he has the right face for saying this. He gets that angsty look, breathing threats and fire out of his mouth, and you can see the passion of it. Look at these words, ravaging, dragging off men and women, breathing threats and murder. Why, in the light of the fact that there is still a tomb in Jerusalem that is empty, and then the incredible response of Stephen to his own martyrdom, as we see Stephen's face lit up, and he is remarkable in his response to his own imminent death. Why in the light of these things do we witness such intensity to Saul's actions and attitude? In the face of evidence for Jesus being the Christ, Saul doubles down. The spiritual need to perform, combined with a psychological need to appear consistent, is driving him further and further into his sin. Then we read in the rest of chapter, verse 1 and 2, he says, Then he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We see here that Saul's actions are now being backed. He's backed by the religious leaders, and possibly, as some commentators point out, maybe even had the force of law behind him. There's some evidence that in Rome, there was some times when Rome gave legal authority to these religious sects to even go beyond their normal sphere. And so it's possible that what Saul was doing was certainly sanctioned by the religious powers, but possibly even sanctioned by the governmental powers. And I just want to take an aside here to remind ourselves as Christians, it's important we don't confuse legality with morality. What is legal is not always right. What Saul was doing was legal, but it was not moral. The government or even religious leaders do not define what is right. And as Christians that live in a society, we have to remember that. God defines what's right. Saul was zealous for good works. We see how he describes this period of his life. He says in Galatians 1, 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, and how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. And how he says it in Philippians 3, verses 4 to 8, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
of circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Saul had a lot invested in his spiritual standing. He had the perception of righteousness. He had the self-identification of righteousness. But he was lost. He didn't just reject Jesus. He was investing in destroying the legacy of Jesus. He was lost with little hope of being found. Accepting Christ would be to admit the unthinkable. Just like the family of this young woman, to accept the fact that their convicted murderer was not a murderer at all, but an innocent man. Just like those people who double down on their initial thought because they don't want to appear to be double-minded. The chances for Paul or Saul here to turn himself around is almost impossible from a human standpoint. And yet in the middle of this story, of this very unlikely circumstance, we see a personal confrontation of the gospel. It says in verse 3, And now as he went his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul, as we've already established, was committed in his unbelief. There was none more unlikely to accept Christ. But Christ, in his mercy and grace, broke through and sought out Saul. Mercy and grace came to him. There's a prophetic pattern here. This isn't the first time in Scripture we see light breaking through and someone falling to the ground over and over again in the Old Testament. Especially, we see this pattern when God is calling the prophets to himself to declare his message. The light shines and he is blinded and he falls to the ground. We also see that this is a personal thing. His personal persecution is called out. The resurrected Christ appears to Saul and personally confronts his sin. A sin against Christ's people is a sin against Christ. Saul's sin was only brought to light by the presence of Christ here. We can rationalize our sin as not that bad, or we might even consider ourselves as righteous, like Saul thought of himself as righteous. But when we meet Jesus face to face, who we are is exposed. We find ourselves in a unique situation in which we are exposed and all of our sin is made known. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that we are exposed and we are loved at the same time. How is that possible? I'm afraid that if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't like me at all. If you knew me on my worst days, you might reject me completely. And yet Christ meets Saul in the place of his sin, exposes his sin, exposes his own heart to himself, and loves him. This is the gospel. You can't come to Jesus on your own merits. He always has to stoop to us and rescue us from our sin. 
Look at the change that happened in Paul's perspective. We already read the first part of Philippians chapter 3, where Paul is talking about his own past and how he thought he was so great. But look how his change takes place in Philippians 3, 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All the good stuff that I thought mattered, it was loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. When someone is committed to their way of thinking, and we all can be this way, this is part of our human condition, we need a miracle to save us. In this way, Saul's conversion is typical and non-typical. It's non-typical in the sense that there's clearly something that Luke is doing here by the inspiration of the Spirit to highlight the work of Saul and to highlight Saul's unique role that's going to be taking place in the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles like us. But it's also typical in some ways, too, in the sense that, yes, a light didn't shine on me at my conversion. I didn't see Jesus face to face. But the same kind of work had to happen in my heart. So, Three things for us to consider. Charlie Peacock has a song called Cheer Up Church, and there's a line in this song. This is an old song. Probably most of you have never heard it before, but I think about it a lot. It says, cheer up, church. You're worse off than you think. What does that mean? Cheer up because grace is near. It says, cheer up, church. You're worse off than you think. Cheer up, church. You're standing at the brink. Don't despair. Do not fear. Grace is near. The reason we can be cheerful in the fact of our brokenness is because God's grace is greater than our brokenness. So we can cheer up because God loves us even in our brokenness. God loved Saul even though Saul was killing his people. Secondly, we all need to encounter the risen Lord. This is typical for all of us. We all need to come face to face with the question of who is this Christ? And what will I do with him? He saw the resurrected Christ, and he saw the nail prints in his hands, sure, but he also saw his glory. We all need to come face to face with the resurrected Christ in his glory and repent of our sin. And then thirdly, we see that losing it all to gain Christ is a bargain. When Paul says, I lost it all, I gave away everything, all the good works I had stored up, all of my prestige and my religious background, everything that I had earned to that point, all the advancements I had made in my system, it was all lost to me. But we also see that in saying it's all lost, he doesn't mean that, wow, look how impoverished I am now. No, he goes, it's all worth it to me. What I lost is nothing compared to what I got. And we say, well, what did you get, Paul? He goes, only Jesus, only Jesus. That's way better than everything else this world can give. I got Jesus. Saul had unwittingly made a death pact. His zeal and commitment would have sealed his fate. It took a miracle to save him, and it takes a miracle to save all of us. And it is interesting to note that when Paul is persecuting the church, it says that he searched for those belonging to the way. Certainly, lifestyle and actions are important for the Christian life. No question about that. But they were the obsession for Paul. Later, when Ananias prays, he refers to the believers as those who call on your name. 
Our life should be animated. That means like fueled or powered by the reality that in our deep need, we called and continue to call on the name of the Lord and are saved. We may not have a vision like Paul did, but the Holy Spirit works in hearts and brings the message of the person of Jesus Christ to us. Accept him and be freed. Paul got this deep in his bones as he writes in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then lastly, we saw the the personal confrontation of the gospel and then a personal calling with the gospel. He said, so rise and enter the city in verse 6, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless and hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go up to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias would come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Imagine there's a guy in Fremont who's killing Christians everywhere. Finally, you get a vision that you're supposed to go up to him and tell him that you're a Christian because he just got saved. How excited would you be about that? And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to our saints in Jerusalem. Ananias wasn't dumb. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. There's four things that jump out to me about this passage. One, we see that faith here is active. Faith and action, think of them as going walking hand in hand. It's not that faith, not that action comes before faith, like some would say. It's not that our works would save us or that our works lead to faith. Faith precedes action, but faith is active. It is animated. It is, it is moving somewhere. There's action to this. Faith is not solitary. It is not as if God just called Saul by himself. No, God called Saul and saved him and brought him into community. We're reminded we need community. We need guides. But our community can't follow Christ for us. We need to follow Christ. We need to commit to Christ. We need to encounter Christ personally. We also do that with others. Paul was brought in by Ananias. He was baptized by Ananias. He was introduced to the community by Ananias. Thirdly, we see here that faith is not easy. We see Ananias called to do something really hard. And we see that Saul is called to do something really hard. If you're inclined to lead toward prosperity theology, read what he says about Saul. 
it's clear that Saul was not being led into any kind of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He's saying right up front, he's going to suffer for my name, and I will reveal that to him ahead of time. These are the things that Saul is going to go through for my sake. Faith is not easy. It's a commitment to Christ, and it's a commitment to carry the cross of Christ at times. And we see here also that faith is missional. The result of faith is participation, participation in the mission of God, the missio dei sometimes it's referred to as. I like this quote by a professor named David Bosch, who's with the Lord now. He says, missions is quite simply, or mission is quite simply the participation of Christians in the liberating mission of Jesus, wagering on a future that verifiable experience seems to believe. This is the good news of God's love incarnated in the witness of a community for the sake of the world. Paul was saved. He was radically converted on that road to Damascus, and he was given a mission. And our mission will look different than Saul's, possibly, but all of us are called to be on mission with God. For Ananias, it was the discipling of Saul and the stewardship of his entrance into the church. This is really about all we know about Ananias. He was a faithful man, a godly man, a study of the scriptures, and he was used in this unique way in the life of Saul. For Saul, we'll see lived out in the weeks ahead, but it's stated here in this text. It was to engage in the unique ministry of what we could call today foreign missions. Notice, however, that all of this was done within the context of the church. I want to remind us, especially as we are so prone to individualism, there are no strictly private callings. Over and over again, we're going to watch as Saul is commissioned by his church. He's a part of the community. He is not acting independently, even though he has a unique and special word from the Lord about his ministry. There are no strictly private callings. The call to follow Christ is not simply a call to agree with the tenets of Christian dogma. It's not just a scent to Christian doctrine. You can memorize all of our catechisms and not get into heaven. You, cannot, you, can, you can memorize all the, the Wayne Grudem theology that, you guys are go, that said the college students are going through on Monday nights, and you're welcome to join that group, and, and not be any closer to heaven. Saul probably understood the beliefs of the Christians better than some of the Christians did. And yet he still needed to follow Jesus. As he followed Jesus, he lived out his life's purpose, his mission. And so in closing this morning, two questions for you. One, this is the most fundamental question I think there could be asked. Have you given your life to Jesus and called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? I'm not talking about were you baptized and catechized as an infant. I'm not talking about did you write your name in the back of the Bible because your mom prayed with you when you were four. I'm talking about have you given your life to follow Christ? Have you called on the name of the Lord to be saved? Have you had an encounter with the personal and risen Jesus? If you haven't, today you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then secondly, which I assume that probably most in this room have committed their life to Jesus, 
how are you engaging in the mission of God? You've not been saved simply to memorize more Christian doc- doctrine. You've not been saved simply so you can sit here on Sunday and you know, check that off your list. You've been saved to engage in what God is doing around the world and in your own home and in your own community. How are you engaging in the mission of God? 